Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur, the backbeat of the backseat. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? I'm back. I'm home. I'm here doing tune-up podcasts. <laughs> Man, every time I leave, I I think like, oh, you know, a lot. You know, touring involves like, you know, a certain degree of downtime in almost every day, and I go in with the intention, like, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It's going to be easy to do this. I'll have plenty of time. Now I'm like four days in. <laughs> and besides for playing drums, I'm mostly dead to the fucking world. It's so, <laughs> I, I always have grander ambitions than I can pull off once yeah. I get out there. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, like the first tour since we started doing this, I was like, okay, like maybe, but then this time I did not even bother. I'm no, just like, I'll see you in four I weeks. Know, I know. <laughs> Well, one day, one day we'll figure it out. Well, yeah, but we have to get you warmed up to the take game. Top five crowds that you played for. On oh, the floor God. Oh, <laughs> terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, I mean, some of the places we haven't been in quite a long time. So it was like, you know, we hadn't been to Texas in, you know, a good, good eight or nine years. We hadn't been to Florida in even longer. So, you know, hitting some of these towns was pretty exciting because it was just like, I mean, we, we played a show in San Antonio and the last time we played in San Antonio was like, you the know, Tony Parker era, like a 75 cap like bar, you know, somewhere in the, the wrong side of town, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was like really getting, uh, you know, getting the dust knocked off in some of these places. We haven't been to Southern Florida. We went to Fort Lauderdale. I don't think we've been to Miami since shit like 2009 or something like that. So it was kind of like reinvigorating, you know, playing for people who who haven't seen us in, in quite a long time, you know, a hundred percent. You played some really cool venues. I I, I, yeah. I got to leave this off here. The Ryman Auditorium. What, what was I like uh, to play compared to other places? It was very different because the stage and the main performance area is an active part of the museum all day. So like your whole crew, you know, we're all up on stage getting our stuff ready and there's little steps going up for people to take a photo op with the stage, like while you're setting up the stage. So all day long, you're kind of sharing this space with museum goers. Uh, so that, that was pretty interesting. And then at four o'clock, you know, it shuts down. But, it, you know, it was one of those places like, you know, had a crazy amount of history, like all over it and every and a lot of pride, you know, I mean, even our uh, bus driver who was from Tupelo, Mississippi, he made sure the bus was like squeaky clean to even be in the Ryman parking lot because he's like, it's the Grand Ole Opry, baby, you know, like I got to step up. So that part of it was really cool. I mean, I'm not a huge country music fan. So like as far as the names and the faces, it probably didn't ring uh, as much as it did with some others, but it's it's a tangible history there, and it was fun to photobomb a couple tourists early on in the in the day when I was setting up my drums. And then you guys hit Atlantic City. What was that like? The Hard Rock. That's a, that that venue seemed interesting. It it seemed like kind of a, a a converted convention hall. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I forget that the Hard Rock in AC used to be the Taj. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like it's got those weird, archaic 
opulence, you know, <laughs> touches of the past in there. Um, but you know, AC for me, that's a, that's a family show. Yeah. So you know, we had a day off in AC, but you know, my entire crew came after school to hang out. Um, so it turned into you know, like that's that's where it's a good thing that uh, you know, one one thing that connects a band always and should be part of their initial motives is like you know, shared goals and shared like you need to be looking in the same direction and wanting the same things to, you know, to get there adequately. And I think one of the things that helped Gaslight at this point is the fact that we all have kids um, and we're all kind of going through that thing. So, you know, the morning of a show when we're meeting at the hotel pool at 10 o'clock to let the kids go swimming and sitting on, you know, the chair, like it's a different different way of doing things by the time the show happens you're like you know because you get one day of family day and you're you're back so i mean that's that's one of the biggest things is like you know when i'm in full-on kid mode at home i'm really winding down the clock at night at about 10 o'clock and i usually don't get past like 11 o'clock and you know that's literally my set time on tour, you know, is so, you know, I quickly adjust once I'm out on the road where, you know, like the first day I can't sleep past like eight o'clock, but a few days in, I'm like waking up from my second sleep. It's like 10, 11, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, good. I feel nice and rested. The harder transition is coming back. Mm. And when you get used to, you know, that second sleep, going to sleep at two, three in the morning and waking up at, you know, the, you know 10 11 12 and then you plop yourself back home and you get the 645 wake up you know that's what's like jarring and and what kind of makes uh you feel like a, like a shell of a person and a little confused for the first few days for sure how was uh the day night double header in atlanta that must have been a went nuts okay nuts. yeah went okay i think we were definitely feeling it that was a 12 midnight set time, like 12, 15 or something. So after a festival set that day. So it was due to a fuck up, you know, like basically it was one of those situations where we were supposed to play our after show or our, you know, non-festival show Friday night and then play our festival set Saturday. Uh, I see an Instagram post from my own band. <laughs> That says this show is on Saturday. I hit up management. I'm like, uh, why is that the same day? They're like, oops, I don't know. And it was a fuck up by the festival for putting us on. But they'd already announced the show. They already started selling tickets. So it's one of those unfortunate, you know, things where if we were to cancel, even if we were like, oh, the festival messed up, we're still canceling a show on people who bought tickets already and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a... Hey guys, can you do it? <laughs> oh, or like, no. What do you mean we do it? You already fucking started it. Like, so yeah, we didn't have much of a choice, but it ended up, I was more nervous for it than, than it actually was, but it was a heck of a day. I mean, cause you know, uh, we played daytime at a festival. So this entire lighting package we have is useless, <laughs> you know? Um, so the whole crew had to wake up super early get to the venue venue, unload all the, you know, the audio and lighting rigs 
at like nine o'clock in the morning, then drive back to the festival with the gear, you know, to get set up, play the show. And I think like 15 minutes after we were done playing, we were in a in a car trying to get back to the venue, getting that show set up. So it was, uh, it was a heck of a day, probably harder for our crew even than it was for us. So, yeah. so bless them. Had a little time off in San Antonio. Mm. Saw the Alamo for the first time because it was, uh, I really, en- I really, what's that? No, I was just asking if it's memorable, rememberable. It is. I mean, for someone like me, it doesn't take long to find a place like that a little skeevy um because it's just like you know historical murder porn kind of stuff going on and uh you know one of those great reminders that the winners write history because the other side of that conflict is not very well talked about at that place and it's got a real kind of like america's jeff foxworthy kind of vibe so um the actual place is like it's interesting uh and it's um cool to see i'm glad i did we asked one of the security guards if there was basement of course and if peewee's bike was in the bottom because we had to i didn't pee on it um but no it was interesting i took a nice walk there i decided to not spend any money in the gift shop though um what i enjoyed the most in san antonio was uh the river walk which is this beautifully designed like just canal and river that cuts through. It feels very like European and cool. Well, it feels European plus like a bubblegum shrimp company. And, <laughs> you know, it's a little touristy too. Um, but yeah, that was a really nice thing. In Memphis, I had a day off and I caught a Memphis Redbirds oh. Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp game. <laughs> That's really the name of the team. But I got to see Jordan Walker, who was just... Uh, sent down by the Cardinals a few days before mm-hmm. that was a fun day off. And you know, one of the cooler day offs I had, I was surprised was in Portland, Maine. Oh, I love that town. You what know a great town. Mm-hmm. What a great town. I really, I'll tell you the last time I was in Portland, Maine was in like 2006 when gaslight Anthem decided to do a tour with our buddies, the forever endeavor. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do new England in January. Oh, in vans, you know, um, we played at a pizza place in Portland, Maine called like Vito's Pizza or something. <laughs> there was very few people there. And this was the night. This is always in my head. What I remember Portland, Maine as yeah. is the night I learned what runners nipples are, <laughs> because that night at the show, it was so freezing in the venue that, you know, nips got a little hard. But then I worked up a sweat playing <laughs> and ouch. After like three, four songs, like I couldn't bear it. And I had to take my shirt off because my nipples hurt so bad. And it took like three or four days to recover. So it's one of those funny things about tour is like, um, you know, if you wind up in a random city in a weird side of town and the weather is bad in your head, you're like, oh, that fucking city sucks. Yeah. You know, and forever in your head, you're like, that place sucks. And then you go back like 15 years later on a nice day mm-hmm. in a different part of town. You're like, oh, what a great place. And I kind of had that uh, that feeling with Portland this time. Um, yeah, what what a cool town. That took me everywhere, man. Um, and even, you know, ending uh, ending the tour at a apple orchard outside of Syracuse, New York, which is very it. interesting. But again, pretty day. You know, I was trying to 
treat every show like it could be your last, you know, like the, the way that you're not guaranteed any day of your life. And, you know, so I was really trying to be, you know, grateful and see past the hard stuff of tour pretty often. But but by the end of it, I sure was ready to come home. Yeah, that's a fact. Well, it sounds fun. The people were loving it online. People love like how the was mic- the online? I, I don't oh. check anymore. It was good. The online was Positive? good. People okay. liked it. A uh, little confusion uh, with the mic swap thing, but I think outside of that, um, just clean mic, baby. Yeah, clean mic. Clean mic. Clean mic. He's spitting them and stuff. You know, <laughs> this mic's been in my basement getting used by my kids for for band practice. For oh, a month, the so. kids have a band now. They don't. Well. <laughs> My son comes up. He comes up with great band names because he's yeah. a big Iron Maiden fan. Yeah. So I think one the other day is like, yeah, I want to be in a band called Firewolf. It's like, oh, awesome. Shit. <laughs> Good name. Like I'm pissed. I didn't think of that. You know. No, but they jammed out in the basement. I can't imagine that they're uh, being very respectful with not spitting into this mic. So I might have strep throat or something at the end of this. Oh, man. Well, Benny, you know what segment does not have, have strip throw, but does need to be dusted off a little bit right now. This day in music history? Oh, we missed it. What do you got? All right. On this day in 2002, the wedding ring that Paul McCartney had given his fiance, Heather Mills, ends up thrown out of the window of the hotel where the couple is staying in Miami. Hotel staff uses metal detectors to find the $25,000 ring the next day. Despite the quarrel, Paul and Heather go ahead with the wedding. Two things jumped out at me when I read this story. Hey, it's like, you know how there's like those basic rules in life? Like like in Teen Wolf, you know, where he's (laughs) like, never play cards with a guy named Brooklyn, you know, stuff (laughs) like that. I feel like if a wedding ring is being thrown out of a hotel window the night before a wedding, that might be a red flag. Yeah, that might be like, don't get married. Maybe. That popped out into my head. The second thing, and I don't mean to sound elitist here, but $25,000 yeah. ring for I, Paul McCartney? I had that same note. Seems low. <laughs> that seems low. That seems modest. You that know? seems like I'm not really invested in this, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, like you know, I didn't spend that much on a ring, but I, I spent a portion of that much on a ring. And... The idea that Paul's not just going all in. I wonder if the two are hand in hand and if the price of the ring is part of the reason it went out the window. You know, like if you had an extra nugget $100,000 diamond on there, I don't know if that thing's going out the window at all. (laughs) You think Paul, I mean, what's Paul got to be worth? Hundreds of millions of dollars, right? You know, 25 grand on a wedding ring. I don't know, Paul. You should have gone farther in. So I had the same one, did the quick switcheroo, and I wanted to bring this up because now I know that the girlfriend does not listen to this, does not watch this, so thank God. So I feel like they're also not married anymore. So and they weren't married shortly after this wedding. Like this happened in like 2003, and their divorce was finalized by 2008. Okay. So uh, again, wedding ring goes out the hotel window. Don't waste the years. You know it's not going to work. Now, I've recently have been learning a, a lot about this. Through, oh, and, and yes. Yeah, yeah. so I, I've been going through that process. Let me ask you this question. Go on. When you're, when you're doing this thing, was your wife 
bigger into the I want the whole thing to be a surprise or or did you guys go and and do this shopping together? No, I wouldn't be I would in my situation I would be nuts to surprise my wife. Yeah. <laughs> because she has very specific taste and very individual individualistic person. So like and I don't know dick about rings. Yeah. So between all those things, I I did surprise with like how and when I asked the question and stuff like that. But I made sure that she was part of the ring process yeah. because I wanted to I wanted to nail it. I wanted to buy the thing once, you know, yeah, 100%. And I, I don't know, know if you know this about me. I'm on my third <laughs> ring. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I remember one of the early tune ups, like you were trying to find like the ring and it was like a whole thing. Yeah. But yeah. And um, the first one got peed on and flushed down uh, the bus of, a, oh, yeah. of the yeah, toilet of a bus. So, you know, maybe That's I'm funny. the wrong guy to ask. Danny. But I'm I'm surprised how uncut gemsy this whole process is. Oh, yeah. Oh, Double wow. doors. You, I, you're hanging out in the Diamond District? Maplewood, baby. Maplewood. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh-oh. I'll put in a call for you. I know, right? To, my, to the people. <laughs> All right. Well, on this day, Benny, in 1979, Donna Summer started a three-week run at number one with Hot Stuff, uh, her second U.S. number one. And I bring this up because a great documentary on her on HBO. It feels like everybody's getting uh, the documentary treatment right now, specifically from HBO. As you know, people don't want to pay writers and stuff. They just want this straight content that's ready to go. Um, but great Donna Summer documentary. Not the biggest Donna Summer fan. I know that probably will, would surprise some of our tune-up audience, but solid doc. Wow. Is that why I've been seeing so many documentaries? Mm-hmm. I mean, someone's still got to write those. To a You're going to see a lot more. You're going to see a lot more. Yikes. But... Well, we'll get into that, won't we? We will. We will. All right. But we would be remiss uh, without mentioning the passing of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner herself. <laughs> Um, you know, this happened last week. She died at her home near Zurich at the age of 83. Just a unbelievable career. Somebody who has, uh, you know, came up at the, through the Ike and Tina, um, what were they called? No, I wanted to say traveling roadshow. It's not traveling roadshow. That'd be disrespectful. But, uh, uh, they came up in through the sixties and the fifties. Ike and Tina Turner, uh, big big thing and then but but the part that i have most known tina for is her 1980s turn you know uh after um they have have the messy split and everything she comes back with private dancer and has um you know songs like better be good to me uh typical male the best uh we don't need another hero just great stuff um me she probably has the best bond song ever with golden eye oh yeah Oh yeah, forgot about that. And low-key acting turn, Thunder Mad Max. Come on, Thunder Road. What the heck is happening here? Uh, Tommy, Mad Max, Thunderdome. Uh, great stuff. Um, still, but despite all of those later hits, man, you got of uh, Proud Mary is still an, an, an all-time bop. Her version will be playing forever. So, how will you remember Miss Tina Turner? I mean. It's it's interesting because for someone my age, I think, of course, I knew of Tina Turner in the 80s. 
But then the movie came out in, you know, the 90s with Angela Bassett. And all I can remember my mom talking about was her arms, you know, how jacked she was. Um, and Tina Turner's legs and, you know, like her hair and just kind of the image. She's one of those like iconic people in music that just like was seemingly part of my childhood, you know, and coming up. Um, but I think the most impressive, I mean, when you go back to the 50s and 60s, and really see what Ike and Tina did for rock and roll, you know, despite everything that came out later in the story we know and how big of a piece of shit Ike wound up being, um, you know, their contributions, especially for non-white people playing that music at that time and the way they were delivering it was crucial, a uh, crucial stepping stone in like the entire history of rock and roll. That's probably not talked about enough. You know, it's like, how much can we talk about the fucking Beatles without getting into these other sides of the, the building blocks of rock where like people were really stealing from these artists and, and the, the most influential, you know, artists at the time. And then, you know, Ike and Tina split in 76 and you can consider her eighties career as one of the greatest comebacks in music history. Like no one knew she was coming back and she not only came back, she came back, with Private Dancer, which is a multi-platinum record with What's Love Got to Do With It on it. I mean, completely iconic through another generation. You know, she um, sold 150 million records worldwide, 12 Grammys, like you said. Interesting actress, really. And then, you know, you see interviews with her later in life, and it really seemed like just a wise person who really understood their career and their life and like literally relinquished her american citizenship in 2013 became swiss not a bad move beautiful (laughs) place um and you could kind of see it in the way she would talk and stuff she was just she felt full you know when she would speak later in life and it was nice to see especially considering the trauma that she endured like early in life so I think there's a lot of lessons and a lot of cool things to take from Tina Turner's career. Big loss. The era of her that I'm most fascinated. So like is the Vegas era where she had, where she's almost like a nostalgic act playing these like right. lounges in like Vegas. And then she's like, you know, I'm going to be the female Mick Jagger. And then Mick Jagger ends up trying to copy her yet again. Right. Yet again. Crazy. How many times can Mick Jagger steal from black music in one <laughs> lifetime? He's going for dozens, dozens if, at this point. If he was my age, I'd be like, shame on you. But uh, ignorance is bliss or ignorance is rich. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That, that motherfucker should be canceled like R. <laughs> Kelly when you hear the fucking stories. Yikes. Uh, but we will miss Tina Turner. Um, speaking of somebody else who has... Uh, mid-career changed their entire trajectory of their career benny we got to talk about what happened closer to home uh with miss taylor swift because i did not i knew taylor was big you know we like you know how much of a, a rabid fan base she had i was not expecting the metlife shows to be shut down Secaucus junking train station uh Parkway shut down almost like it's Labor Day, Memorial Day. People all trying to get into MetLife Stadium. She sold out uh, three straight nights at the home of the New York Jets and the New York Giants, um, bringing a 
a, a vibe out in 18 to 35 year old women that it's like grateful dead. But if a giant glitter bomb exploded in the middle of it, just a, a ball of energy, like some of the videos, I've never heard that stadium that loud. And they've had a hundred concerts. They've had all of these sporting events and it's never kind of matched that kind of energy in, in its existence thus far. No, it's remarkable. I mean, you know, I knew Taylor Swift was big. I knew she was successful and iconic. I've always been pro Swift mm -hmm. in most ways, you know. I like I like this stuff, but I had no idea that it was this big. I mean, just to give people a scale of this stuff, like try to remember three sold out nights at MetLife. That's like two hundred thousand tickets. It's a lot of fucking people, and that's one city. She was doing three. She did three nights at the Link in Philly, mm. <laughs> so literally fifty miles down the road. Sold another 200,000 tickets, you know, um, you know, and the one thing. So I actually have a funny anecdotal experience with this this time. I flew home in the middle of this tour to go to my daughter's birthday party. Mm. And I flew from North Carolina to Philly and then Philly out to Nashville. And in both instances, because I was sort of following Taylor around, I could see the tangible effects of Taylor's concerts on the plane. There was some beat up looking people wearing Taylor Swift shit, all sweatpants, of course, you know, on these flights. But when I was taking off from Philly to go back, her uh, stage plot was still set up at the link. So I actually got a bird's eye view from the plane and saw her stage, uh, her stage set up. Oh my God. It's massive. And I, you know, and like that, that's one of the things I was explaining to someone the other day, like just try to conceptualize like, like we're like a, a mildly successful rock band. Right. And we have to bring a truck now for, for lighting packages, audio package for merchandise, like stuff like that. I see a stage like that and I'm like, shit, that thing must've taken 60, 80 trucks to just move this gigantic like you know uh performance arena because basically when you go to these stadiums they don't give you shit <laughs> they give you an empty stadium and they're like here you go and it's up to you to basically do everything the staging the lighting the sound all of it is coming from them so i mean the the amount of work and years and effort that it took from literally like probably thousands of people to put this show together is remarkable. It's like literally like a traveling city, you know? And um, even, even you think, you know, if you have 80 trucks going to a show, you have 80 truck drivers. Yeah. Which means 80 hotel rooms every day, you know, like that's just drivers, you know? So the size and scale of this thing is really like, impressive and cool and i'm glad someone like taylor swift is doing it my nieces went to one of the shows the other day they had a fucking blast they got jazzed up they got the t-shirts i don't know it's like one of those cool i can't like i remember a lot of people from my generation their first concert was new kids on the block <laughs> because it was like the late 80s it was their first chance to go and the first thing that kind of crossed over with kids and you could get your parents to take you to the show. I have a feeling this is going to be a lot of people's first concert, yeah. you know, and it's cool. I think it's going to a good person this time.
A hundred percent. And coming all, you know, there was some speculation there, and I think we even talked about it on here. Is the stadium concert dead? And it turns out, no, like there just wasn't somebody to to meet the venues yeah. that you had across this country. And and another band doing it right now is like the Coldplay setup is yeah. amazing. That fucking stage setup Metallica has. You've seen those videos <laughs> with divorced Hetfield smoking cigars <laughs> on the side of the stage. Like, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think we're dealing with a, you know, a really like comeback summer in a lot of ways for for large scale music like this, you know, a hundred percent. And I, I I did, you know, we were texting about this a, a little bit. You guys are a, a band that has great emotional ap- appeal to people. Um, this is Taylor Swift, same thing on a a, a almost cult like yeah. basis where people just are, are just rabid for her. I'm super interested on how. I mean, artists, I, I don't think try to do it. I just think it's like a byproduct of, of, of what happens. But um, just kind of in, in, in your experience, some of like the acts that you've seen and everything like that, what's like the common denominator for the bands that uh, get this reaction out of their fans? I think she never fucked it up. You know, she never gave anything to her fans to apologize for, you know, and like that's kind of a rare thing that people overlook, you know, like she had hits and she had hits when she was young and she had so many opportunities to kind of blow it, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, put out a shit record. She never did it, you know? And if you have like worldwide hits and you keep following them up with worldwide hits and you never mess up your reputation, you don't lose your fans, you know, and you just keep the fans you had. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing like a lot of, you know, people in their 30s and 40s who enjoyed some Taylor Swift songs 10 to 15 years ago that are happily taking their kids to these shows. And it's becoming a multi-generational thing. So, you know, but I think with her, the cult-like status, you know, there is more to Taylor Swift than songs. And there always have been. She's had a lot of situations where people tried to take advantage of her and she stood up for herself and you know, has had press and positive press in other areas too, besides for music, which I think just added to this kind of massive narrative, you know, but people will go the next 10, 20 years, people at labels and A&R people trying to find the secret balance that Taylor Swift found. You know what? She's just really fucking good and she hit it at the right time. And this is what happens. Good for her, you know? Hundred percent, and hopefully her her next move, which it seems to be, is going to save Hollywood. So get get her her oh, fans back to the movie. Going Elvis, she's going Elvis. I, no, as the director, which oh. is what Elvis probably should have done with the yeah, creative right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Different time, different time. But that's it. Uh, Benny, let's get to said television and movies. And since we've been gone, uh, it's been brewing pretty much as soon as we left uh, the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, went on strike on May 2nd. Um, this uh, alliance ha- has about 11,000 writers uh, from of writers of television, news, radio, movies uh, and online. Uh, they went on strike against the studios and um, that guild there. 
um, demanding higher pay and a stable pay structure, as well as uh, fairer deals and contracts and provisions about artificial intelligence. You know, just like how we talk about the NBA having CBAs and what that means for the players uh, versus the team. Uh, each guild and union in Hollywood has a similar situation. Uh, the last time that the writer's strike happened was in 2008. So I was pre-streaming. And the, the studios kind of won there because they kicked the residual check conversation about streaming down the road to now. And now we've seen what streaming has become. Like back then, it was like everything was free and it was wild. Now people are making a lot of money. So, um, and this this upcoming week, uh, the Directors Guild is also about their CBA is about to expire and they're about to go on strike. So, oh, wow. uh, major work stoppage coming in Hollywood. I mean, you know, without knowing too much about this, I mean, I remember the last time there was a strike and how like so much TV that people love suffered of the last season of a lot of stuff got fucked up and had horrible stories. Like they are good. The people who do this are good and they know they're good. So when I see something like this, I like to see it and I hope they're compensated it. You know, I think it's a unique situation where the creatives actually hold some sway. They can be protected because they know how to get together do it all at once and be kind of unified, which, you know, I think if any industry, you know, got together, they might be able to figure out. I was wondering if I could do a drummer strike next, <laughs> you know, fair compensation for drummers. Uh, no, um, <laughs> you know, you know, songs sound different based oh, yeah. on who's playing back there, oh, uh. people, you know, um, but I, you know, I think it's a, uh, it's a positive thing. I support them and I hope, I hope they get they get a fair wage. I mean, God knows the people who are signing the checks have have more than enough money to properly compensate and take care of the people actually creating the work, you know? And the interesting thing, so like the current uh, residual structure, it's in the 3 to 4% range. All they want is in the 5 to 6% range uh, from these billion-dollar companies and these CEOs who don't make the thing. They may green like the thing, but they don't actually make the thing. Your Bob Igers, your David Zasloffs of Warner Brothers and Discovery that have these like NBA S contracts per year, yeah. 23, 30 million, million dollars a year. Sorry. Then you have writers that are writing on very successful shows that are bringing in the money that are seeing like 20 grand, 30 grand a year. It's just disrespectful. I, yeah. And I think it's even less about the upfront money and guarantees because so many of these writers are working on major shows you know, extremely influential in what they're writing and what they're producing, but it's essentially freelance work, uh -huh. you know, and they're only paid, you know, by the episode, by the season. And it's the second somebody decides to pull the plug or do this, you're fucked yeah. and you're out of money, you know? And I think that's, that's part of the, uh, you know, the, the reason you need to compensate people well at the time. It's like, you know, if somebody is producing something at such a high level, you know, they deserve some flexibility in their life because of it and and not like having to, you know, really, really grasp at straws like every single time you lose yeah. a job, you know, and take the stock price out of creativity. But that's all, you know, <laughs> don't want to go don't, don't want to go too far down down the money route here. But uh, Benny, as we say this in the last week, four of the shows that came Finale. to the peak television of the last decade went off the air uh, the marvelous mrs Maisel took its final bow succession 
uh, came to its epic conclusion, and as did Barry as well. And maybe we even lost Ted Lasso, but you know, they're being kind of smart, leaving it up to any potential spinoffs in the future. Um, this Ted Lasso one created a, a lot of intrigue. So not definitively done yet, but uh, a lot of signs pointing to that at the end of this. So what do you make of the end or potential end of peak TV? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like, you know, it goes in waves, right? It goes in the same way of music where some shows just hit at the right time and and really draw people in. Um, I only, to be fair on, on what we're talking about, I've watched all of Barry. I've watched all of Ted Lasso. Uh, I really enjoyed both shows. Season two of Ted Lasso was okay. Yeah. But every every one of these shows has a lull season. It's hard not to. Um, Succession, I only peppered on, but you know, I do know something about the ending of the show. I listened to Bill Simmons, so I couldn't <laughs> couldn't couldn't get rid of it. Uh and <clears throat> so the so did you watch the end of Ted Lasso? Am I allowed I to talk about it? I did. Yeah. Now now what are we what are we dealing with here? Because I noticed like a lot of this season was character development to the players on the team, right? Mm -hmm. Which would make an actual series about the team itself coached by Roy Kent and Nathan Shelley. You know, very everybody's still in place besides for Ted, right? So I do think there's a lot of... uh, uh, freedom to to do something on that way what did you think of the last ted lasso oh very good episode i, I like how, how they wrapped it interesting thing to point out there is uh brett goldstein who plays roy kent and uh bill lawrence the showrunner have overall deals with apple still so they could take that thing and run a completely different way uh brett goldstein uh and lawrence created uh uh, sh- shrinking uh, with Harrison oh, Ford on yeah, Apple. Yeah, yeah. Another great Good show. show good show. Um, so there's that route that they could go. The interest, the way that I've wanted them to take any sort of, of spinoff here is put either Ted Lasso or Roy Kent, because you, you got a glimpse of uh, Richmond starting a women's team. Right. Put Roy Kent, women's environment, very fun. Or take a uh, Ted Lasso coach, uh, Kansas city current in like the NWSL or something kind of like, so you get that fish out of water thing. Once again, I think that's where the magic really was. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to see like that being the end because there were so many ways for it to go. Yeah. I got to say though, I had a good, good, healthy cry at oh, the yeah. end of that Ted Lasso episode when he comes home and his son sees him. Oh, Oh, it really meant a lot. I was I was a little concerned in that one scene where I'm like, oh no, they slept together. Yeah, they jumped the shark. You, you can't do it. <laughs> you can't it's do it. It's the Tony and Angela thing. You can't <laughs> do it. But um, yeah, no, I really I thought Ted Lasso like this this last season really recaptured kind of the spirit of the first season, which Ted Lasso to me is like pop music, <laughs> you know, and pop music really toes the line all the time on being sweet and perfect and super fucking cheesy and i thought the first season towed the line perfectly second season was a little too much and i thought this third season really brought it back to where i want it which is like i'm enjoying myself when i'm watching it i got the good payoff at the end that's what i want from from fun loving comedy you know what i mean i don't 
I don't need someone to die. I don't need a lesson. You know, I just, I want to, I want that. And they gave it to me. I was very pleased with the last one. My, my, my criticism is of the criticism per usual. What I, what, what I, I've grown to dislike about this show is the, the sports writers that, that think that because they write words for their local newspaper or on Twitter, think that they're qualified to give their oh. opinion, like places like awful announcing, like places that like judge commentary to talk about how the show's lost it, its fastball. It's like, dude, you have no idea. Like not, not to say shut up and dribble, but shut up and keep <laughs> micro blogging. Shut up and dribble. Oh no, <laughs> not again. Yeah, no, I know. It, it, it's a crossover show. So people who are dipping their toes into that world get to say just because they play soccer on it. But yeah, yeah, I hear that. Well, good for me. I don't look at any of that shit. Yeah. So I just enjoyed it myself, had a nice healthy cry. And uh yeah, no, I think there's a lot of avenues for it to keep going. Bar and the Barry was great. Yeah. Um, I like how they wrapped it up. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It was a good bow. But yeah, we'll see. What's the so what's the next? Okay, so we got a a couple. Um our guy Tim Baltz is righteous gemstones comes back. That oh, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a HBO show. Uh this weekend on uh Lily Rose Depp show Icon, that's been very controversial. I think we talked about it on here. That's coming to HBO coming up. Um Amazon Euphoria is still around. Oh, yeah. right? Amazon thinks they, they may have a, a hit on their hands with uh this Citadel show. I think that's from the Russo brothers. Okay. Um, but that's kind of I feel like that's like the elevated version of, of what we've been seeing in primetime on these networks for uh uh decades now. But I just want another season of six of uh severance. Oh uh, yeah. That's what well, I want. I got hooked into that show and I need more. I'm I that was one of the productions that that, that got shut down uh by the strike. So yeah. it's coming, but maybe a little later than you'd like. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But uh final wrap on Ted Lasso is the fact that the thing that I absolutely love about what some of these shows and and i think mazel same thing that's that that's grown into be one of my favorites it's so much harder to write optimism than it is to right. write darkness like I, I know people like love the writing of succession and it's brilliant good show but i think it's easier to cave to our like primitive like evil nature rather than to try to find the optimism and like look up so For sure. um yeah well, I think the smart thing that they did was like you watch a lot of character arcs yeah. in in that show where a lot of the characters at times were borderline or totally over the top unlikable. And by the end, you know, there were times in the show where you didn't like Jamie Tart, yeah. that you didn't like Rebecca Welton, mm -hmm. that you didn't like Ted even, you know, mm. uh, Nathan, like his his whole you know, turn to heel and, and his reclamation project coming back. Like, I think that's where a show like this, you really got to tug into like the sensibilities of people and what you feel and like watching uh, people fuck up and make amends for it in, in good ways is a, is a gratifying thing to watch. And I think that's Ted Lasso nailed that, you know, um, it, it showed weakness in people, but it always brought them back and uh, and I think what that show set out to do was to be hopeful. 
And and by the end of it, there was it was filled with all sorts of hope, even though corny at times, you know, like, oh, sure. You run into the guy at the airport, <laughs> you know, OK, like this is where you got to let it slide a little with Ted Lasso. You got to let a little of that pop sugar on there to, to be able to accept it freely, you know. Well, do you want to talk about another show that's giving people hope? The, the NBA Den- playoffs. Denver Nuggets? <laughs> yeah, the Denver Nuggets. The, the best Miami show Heat. in town. All right. So when, when we last talked to you guys, we were fresh off of a, a first round that saw Miami beat the Milwaukee Bucks. And since then, Miami has taken care of the New York Knicks. Um, they made Joe Mazzula look like he's never coached in the NBA before, which because shocker, he's which a rookie coach. <laughs> um, the Eric Spolstra legacy has been further cemented as he has this team all the way to the NBA finals. Uh, Pat Riley has now been in an, an, an epic 25% of the NBA's NBA finals in his career between as a player, a coach, and now an executive, just the unbelievable feat there. And then you have old consistency on the other side. You have the Denver Nuggets. Uh, number one seed in the Western Conference, who uh, took care of Phoenix and De- uh, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant quite soundly. Yeah. And then you had that Lakers series that was kind of a, a wash. And in between there, a thing that's not even worth talking about in the grand narrative of the playoffs is this Lakers-Warriors series that was fun for old old time's sake. But just like a TV show that's run yeah. too long, it's like I've seen this before. It's in the past. Yeah. So now we have something completely fresh and new in the NBA Finals. Nuggets, Heat, uh, game one last night. Uh, the Nuggets outclassed the Heat. Uh, Jokic, 27 points, 10 rebounds, 14 assists. Just a casual triple-double in his first ever NBA Finals game. Um, Jamal Murray, 26 points, 6 rebounds, 10 assists. Uh, bam, you know, while not being able to get the better of Jokic, uh, had an, an impressive 26-13. Uh, Nuggets 1-0 series lead. Um, this score, the, 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 the final score was closer than uh, the, the game entailed. Miami just not being able to shoot the guys that they've relied on to get here, uh, not getting it done. So are we in for a short series here, or what do you think Spo has cooked up uh, to try to slow down this high-power offense in Game 2? I mean... You know, it's one of those things where, like, my instinct going into this series was the Nuggets are a much better team than the Miami Heat. And the way, you know, I think we even said it before I left for the tour. We were uh, talking about what what happened with the Suns collapse and and somebody getting hurt there. And um, and I think I said it at the time. I'm like, you know who this helps the most is the Nuggets. Yeah. Because they're the team who actually has the cohesion, the chemistry, the the plan, um, the team that doesn't get frazzled in big spots late in the shot clock. You know, like they're fluid and nobody in the West is fluid right now. No, everybody's trying to find it, trying to get to that next gear. And this team is just there. So, you know, it seemed like the realistic thing from the get. But that being said, I went into the Heat Buck series going, oh, Heat are going to get smoked. I went into the Knicks Heat series going, I believe the Knicks are going to win. I went into Boston Heat going, Heat are going to get smoked. And I got shocked every single time by a unit of people that I didn't expect to be able to play the way they were playing. Um, So even though I thought Denver was going to do what they did last night, uh, I thought 
I was like, shit, the Heat have a lot of tricks up their sleeve and a lot of teams have a hard time with them. So we'll see. But they have taken game one of every one of these uh, playoff series so so far. They did not take game one here. Um, I don't think they played badly. Uh, you know, Butler could have done a lot more, but I think they did a good job with them defensively. And that's where one of the things that wasn't talked about a lot going into this series that became immediately noticeable was the positional size advantage that the Nuggets have, yeah. you know, and Jimmy Butler trying to back down Michael Porter or trying to back down Aaron Gordon is a lot more difficult than your typical threes on most teams. Even though Bam had a good game, it took a lot of shots to get there. And it's not exactly what their normal game plan is. Um, you know, it, it it's kind of become three-point uh, success or bust for the Heat in a lot of ways. And a lot of the people they relied on all year to get them those those supplemental buckets, you know, your Struces and Martin from the series before, Duncan Robinson, they were just ice cold last night. And, you know, by the end of the game... You know, if two of those, you know, Struess wide open three pointers went in, we actually have a pretty close game. But the the one thing that became so noticeable again was like, you notice how Jokic and Murray specifically, uh, you know, there can be three seconds left on the shot clock and they're playing exactly the same way they would at the top of the shot clock. There's like this team seemingly is ice cold and kind of unshaken by these situations and really know what they want to do, know how to play with each other. And like I said, it's so fluid. So uh, I do think it's going to be a short series, actually, particularly after this. I don't think Tyler Hero coming back is actually going to help much, could potentially do the opposite. Um, I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of our boy High Smith, not High Tower, <laughs> not High Tower, not High Tower, <laughs> not Mean Girl Joe Green. Um, but yeah, I I do. After watching last night, you know, and seeing the way they just commanded the game, uh, seeing how stoked that home crowd is, like this this is feeling feeling very Nuggets. And I know that's easy to say after a one zero, but I I think I would have told you that if we did this podcast yesterday morning too. I don't think that it's a coincidence that, you know, you look at Jokic and you look at Jimmy Butler, two guys that are probably as, as you know, Jimmy's not exactly stoic, but when it comes to uh, what he does on, on the court, he knows methodically exactly what he wants and he, he doesn't get flustered when it happens. Jokic, same thing, ice cold, uh, knows exactly where his spot is, where his teammates going to be. Uh, the unspoken communication between him and Jamal Murray uh, goes back to them coming off the bench together once upon a time yeah, in, in that yeah. second unit. Um, so I, I think that's no coincidence that these two teams are here. Like like the coolest teams mentally are <laughs> here. Um, but when it comes, I mean, they Miami has no answers here. I know that they have the best coach in, in, in the NBA, High Smith respectively, like I, I heard people saying that, oh yeah, like he may start getting game two. It's not going to shut down a MVP. No, like if, no, if, no. if, if, if Embiid and Giannis have trouble on the Joker, a guy out of, where is it? Wheeling Jesuit is going to come on. <laughs> what are we doing here? I mean, the thing is too, like if I told you yesterday, nuggets are going to score 104 points, who do you think is going to win? 
Nuggets. Really? Yeah. See, see I wouldn't have. Like, oh, like really? that's where, yeah. I mean, I I thought if the Heat could actually manage themselves defensively and only give up 104 points, they're keeping themselves in the game. But this is what the Nuggets have been showing us all playoffs is that they're very comfortable in close games. Yeah. Like, I don't think the Lakers played a very bad series against no. them. They were pretty good. Mm -hmm. And they did their job and they kept it close. But the Nuggets just, at this point, they figured something out where they just know how to win. They know how to make the play when they need to make the play. They seemingly make every big shot they need to. Um, you know, I think Michael Porter is a funny wild card. It, yeah. I said it even before the playoffs started, and I say it now. Sometimes he can fucking shoot you out of a game. I love his confidence, but he takes bad shots sometimes, and I wish he would take that body and get himself into the paint every once in a while, and I think it would help a lot. Um, but you need those bombers to stretch the floor, especially on that team. Uh, I Yeah, but all that being said, I think it's it's – going to be nuggets all the way um not to say that they're going to sweep but right. hard to see in a seven game series the heat finding enough to get past this team it would have to take some really 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 inspired performances from not only the heat's big two but a bunch of complimentary players that you wouldn't expect to have huge series i mean gabe vincent's a great shooter but you know then again what i was talking about with this positional versatility jamal murray's got what three four inches on the guy you know i saw jamal murray boxing on espn the other day he's a tough dude so i just don't think they have enough and if you look at that celtic series right the the celtics mentals beat them the nuggets are are, are not going to beat themselves because in, in in some of that series like the it's celtics true. would like get up, up 10 and be like oh we're good uh we can just take the rest of, of the game off and Mike Malone specifically, New York guy is not going to do that. No. Joker's not going to do it. Murray's not going to do that. And also, how about how about Bruce Brown? Love boy, Bru oh my God, could I love Bruce Brown anymore? <laughs> could I? Oh, he's like Ben Wallace in a guard's <laughs> body. I love the guy so much. Speaking of this Boston series, give yeah. me a percentage on what is the odds of Boston starting the season next year with Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Joe Missoula all in, all in tow. The let's start with, with the Jalen Brown conversation of it all first. That's a interesting one. So like the going rate for somebody like him would be around what you're going to have to pay him. And I don't think you're going Bradley to be Beal numbers. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I don't think that you're exactly going to, a, they're not going to make that trade. They're going through their own uh, reclamation stuff right now. And I don't know if Brown's stock is, is that high to be a, a trade asset. I think the last two postseasons oh, have, yeah. have kind of papooed that right there. So he's going to get his money, but what you would get in return for him right now, I think, is diminished goods. Wow, you really think so? Like, I like him a lot, but I don't think, like, a GM, given what we saw last offseason with, like, the Rudy Gobert trade and stuff like that, which you see A-Rod now trying to be a snake oil salesman for Rudy Gobert, yeah, I don't yeah. think you're going to see teams try to make that same mistake. No, 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 no. How about Boston goes out and finds themselves a real point guard? Ooh. Wouldn't that help? You know, because the one thing I see with Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown, he forces a lot, right? Yeah. He's not a great creator in the sense that 
for some reason, he's not a great dribbler. It seems like <laughs> that might be like the, the worst side of his game. And, you know, there was a couple times in that game seven where Jalen Brown clearly had nothing, had no space. And it's just tossing up a 29 footer or something because I think he thinks he has to. Yeah. And that's kind of been the spirit of this Celtics offense from for years now has been we got these two guys. They create our offense. This runs through them. Marcus Smart sits in the corner and takes his threes along with Horford and stuff. But I think uh, at this point, you know, like what you said, like, uh, does Boston go ahead and and trade Jalen Brown to the Blazers for the the number three pick or something like that? Or, you know, I think these are like the realistic options that are actually out there. But does that put Boston over the top? And you have the Jason Tatum window now. Like this is this is the guy you're building this all around. I think everybody forgets that Jason Tatum was well in the MVP conversation for the first few months of this season. He's an excellent player and he's only 25. Um, so I do think the the key for the Celtics at this point is to you gotta pay the going rate for a guy like Jalen Brown. I know he's gonna make $50 million a year, and it's going to be a hard check to write. But I think your best chances to win and win in this window are to keep those two together and try to make some supplementary deals to figure things out. I mean, Rob Williams, as as much as he can be impressive, I don't think you can count on that guy for, yeah. for full minutes or full loads anymore. He's going to be a part-time player, at least for the time being. Horford is starting to slip down. Marcus Smart has always been polarizing in the way he plays. And, you know, why don't you uh, try to get a proper point guard in there this offseason and see what happens? I think that might be the and – th- and obviously some size up front, you know. Um, but I think that's the best route for Boston at this point. I keep trying to think as you're talking here, like where the, they would go. You know, you look at teams like Minnesota could be a, a option, though. I think they're married to Anthony Edwards and they're not trying to let that go. Maybe Detroit, brand new. What coach. about Houston? I think Houston, Houston, oh, wow. Atlanta. I think those Holy. are the <laughs> I think those are the teams. I think like a Portland, the Houston who have that draft asset, because those are teams who are looking to win now. Yeah. And obviously, you know, putting Jalen Brown with Damian Lillard, like, you know, would, would get that team excited and maybe yeah. wet the palate for, for Lillard, you know, on what he wants over there. You know, I could see like an Atlanta, like, Oh, let's get Trey young in in Boston instead and see what happens and yeah. swap those guys. Those seem like the, the trades that are out there, Houston's looking to rebuild fast and be good soon. Mm. Um, but you know, that's when this draft drops off a little bit. Like, yeah. uh, even though we know that, you know, the, the Thompson twins are seemingly going to be useful NBA players. I mean, there's no telling when or if that's definitely going to be a thing, you know? Um, and, and Boston cannot afford, to to waste two three years of a Jason Tatum window here, yeah. you just don't know what's going to happen, and you really got to you got to get into this guy's late twenties and give him the best opportunity he can, you know, all the time. But like you said, I, it's one of the strangest flip floppy teams I've ever seen as far as like what they are one night to what they are the next night. But I don't know if uh, 
uh, taking this pair apart is is the answer to that. I don't think so. And are we sure that Tatum is the guy, best player on a, a championship team, top five guy in in, in a league kind of caliber here? Like, are I we th- sure? I think so. Yeah. I mean, to think like, you know, if we were looking like historically for the amount of playoff and regular season success a guy has had under 25 years old jason tata it's pretty remarkable and i i feel like there's a highlight on him because he's been in so many big spots already when most guys under 25 aren't even scratching the playoffs yet and we don't give them any shit we're like oh they're still coming into their own building the team i mean the guy was in the finals last year he was in the Eastern Conference Finals this year. Saved their season multiple times. Saved yeah. their season multiple times. Like I said, MVP, uh, MVP front runner at the beginning of this season. Mm-hmm. You know, before other guys started stepping in. So no, I think Jason Tatum is still still the real deal. Um, and if there's less than ten people you're going to build a team around in this league, Jason Tatum is clearly one of them. Yeah. Well, let's do coaches real quick before we get out of here. Yeah. A turbulent offseason, almost an en- English Premier League style offseason yeah. with the coaching. Like, you don't Coach win a championship, swaps. you're out of here. here. Mike Budenholzer, Milwaukee, you're out of here. Monty Williams in Phoenix, <coughs> new ownership, you're out of here. Nick Nurse, Toronto, pack your bags. Uh, Dwayne Casey, Pistons, less success, but get out of here. Um, so yeah, just the unbelievable. Oh, Philadelphia 76ers, Doc Rivers. You couldn't repeat your Celtics championship glory. We're going to do the same thing. Steve Bomber did get out of here. Get out so of here. some of these have already named their, uh, new face in a new place. Monty Williams, Detroit. Um, they, and Monty Williams, according to Brian Winhurst did not want this job. Um, oh. but they backed up the Brinks truck in a, a deal that he gets almost $10 million a year, which is unheard of for a coach that hasn't won a championship to get that yeah. kind of deal. Um, so Monty Williams, Detroit, love that. Love to see what he could do with Cade and Jay and Ivy there. Uh, you know, we, th- this was the case before we went on a little break. Ime in Houston, like that there. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks allegedly set to hire Adrian Griffin. I'm just going to keep moving on that one there because I think that is a complete waste of time. That's a complete waste of a elite player in Giannis's championship window. Philadelphia 76ers, uh, Doc Rivers out, Nick Nurse in like that could be interesting. You know, you've seen what Nick Nurse has been able to do with some big men. Um, this year, I think, was kind of a fluke compared to the rest of his time in Toronto. Uh, so Nick Nurse in in Philadelphia. Um, and still TBD on what the Phoenix Suns and Toronto Raptors are going to do. So what do you make of uh, this coaching musical chairs happening in the NBA right now? Well, I didn't know Monty Williams didn't want the job publicly, but when when I just see fits and what I expect a guy to do and what he's seemingly good at already, hoping he gets to the next level, I mean, they're trying to rehash what the Suns did which is bringing a coach to a a very young team and, you know, mold them to the point of an automatic playoff team. And I think they're thinking, you know, we got uh, Cunningham coming back, hopefully, you know, nice and healthy. Ivy had a great rookie year. Duran had a great rookie year. You still got Bogdanovich there, you know, able to score a lot, you know, a decent amount of depth and the number five pick coming in as well. So um, I think that's a great fit. And for something Monty Williams is good at, he's going to give that team, you know, cohesion and discipline and, you know, 
bare minimum, they're, you know, two, three years away from proper finals contention anyway. So, you know, whatever happened to Monty Williams with the Suns will be ancient history by then. And uh, I think that's one of the more natural signings that made the most sense, albeit the price tag being a little nuts. Uh, the other one I really liked is Nick Nurse to the Sixers. I think um, he's had one of the strangest teams in basketball for a couple years now that was based on this concept that, you know, was really hard to coach. Uh, you know, he had to come up with like a lot of strange and interesting ways to make that team work. Um, and I think he's going into a much better situation now where he's literally uh, adopting the, the MVP of this season. Um, hopefully for him, he's he's not getting James Harden back. I don't know what, what what's going to happen there. But I think Nick Nurse is clearly one of the best X's and O's coaches uh, in basketball. And he's got respect in that way. And that's something I think Doc Rivers suffers with a little bit is is that that part of coaching. So as far as that goes, I think it's a great fit. Uh, Adoka in Houston is funny because, you know, regardless, you know, we'll never know what happened with, with Boston at this point. I mean, I don't know like what it was, how bad it was. Like I'll never know, but I know that Houston just has a tendency to shoot itself in the foot a lot of times. And I kind of see like, Oh, let's bring in email. Let's get Harden back. You know, and, you know, Jalen Green is a really interesting young player, but, but, you know, certainly not a sure thing moving forward. Um, I, you know, that team to me is still going to be bad for a while. And I don't know what Ime is doing for that. Um, Adrian Griffin to the Bucks. Listen, sometimes you got to take a chance, right? And, you know, Nick Nurse was an assistant on another team, came and, and brought him to the finals his first year in there. Like, it's a long shot, pal. I know it is. <laughs> I know it's a long shot. But we don't know what this guy can do yet. We don't know. And maybe they know something that, that apparently the Bucks vetting process was very serious. They went to to every city that the people were in and met them individually. They didn't make them travel. It was... It was a deep process. Um, you know, you don't know the history of, you know, what clicks with certain type of players and this. So I, I think reserve the room to be a little optimistic, you know, because you don't know what he can do yet. Right. So so maybe you're OK. Here's what helped you. Did that help here, you at all? Here, here's what I know. Here's what I know. Adrian Griffin was part of the Milwaukee Bucks front office once upon a time with John Horse in, in 2008. Um, when you have a window like this, you don't go with your boy. You go with the guy who has made NBA Finals adjustments. Otherwise, we're going to see Joe Mazzulla not knowing how to coach against Steve Kerr in a final. That's Joe Mazzulla is a lot more green than Adrian. I, Griffin I met email last year. Yeah. You know, going up, up sure. against. But uh, the so you, who did, who did you want instead? I wanted Nick Nurse because I, I I agree with you when it comes to X's and O's. See, this is the thing with John Horst and you know. Yes, he makes that great Drew Holiday trade, but in the move sense, you, you can call into question what he's been able to do. His draft record, not exactly great. He's hired great assistants for these guys, but I don't know how, how much of that was, was Bud bringing guys who go on to be head coaches. I mean, Taylor Jenkins in Memphis. Um, you have Darvin in 
LA. So I, I don't yeah. know how much of that was horse, how much of that was bud, but this just is a, you have guys that have either been to the NBA finals as coaches or have won. And you go with the guy who is your boy who has granted, he has a long track record. He's worked with Scott Brooks and OKC. Yeah. He's worked, uh, has, has a long track record. Glad he's getting a opportunity but a opportunity on a team that has a dwindling championship window, it, it's kind of hard to look at the positive there. There's a pretty high net rating for active coaches with kids in the league, though. Oh. 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 So, yes. Who cares? Good high net rating for that. So, what have you done for me since your kid's been born? I think it's okay. I think it's okay. I think they're going to be okay. I like it. I'm surprised. Shot Kenny Atkinson just can't get a job after he got fucked by the Nets. Well, he he did get it's a job. Quinn Snyder, his Quinn Snyder light hair, you know. He he did get a job, but he was like, "Nah, I'm, I'm just gonna stay on, yeah. on the bench and try to go all Mike Brown." Quinn Snyder, how 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 upset do you think he is? He's like, "Oh my god, I got myself in Atlanta, a team where the point guard's not gonna like me in 18 months, 12 months." I think that I think he's in okay shape actually over there. I think Atlanta is a much better team and deeper and have a lot of pieces that a good coach is going to be able to work with. And I thought you saw them actually come up with a couple things in their, their play in tournament and their little run this year that kind of actually perked my ears up a little where I'm like, you know what? I don't think this team's in as bad of a shape. I think Atlanta is a classic case of overplaying their value for one year making people think they were ready for a finals already when they certainly weren't. But I don't think it's as grim as, as people make it out to be. They've got a lot of interesting pieces over there. Hmm. All right. Well, you know, we will see. I hope I'm, I'm wrong on, you know, I've questioned John horse a lot on this podcast sure and have. he won a, a championship, but it's, and I know as a regular listener of this podcast, John horse has wrote in many oh, times. I know. Barry Baum has me on speed dial. I love your Sunday show, but what are you doing yeah. on the podcast? He's got my own email now because he's like, listen, I don't want to <laughs> ruffle any more feathers with Denny, but I'd like to have a word with you about how you cover my team. So this is why I'm so sycophantic for Adrian Griffin right now. I'm trying to I'm trying to get myself a private jet ride to Milwaukee, you know? And when you come to the Paps, just leave two tickets. It'll be under Giannis Antetokounmpo. And <laughs> I just met a kid named Giannis the other day. <sighs> it's starting. Wait. Giannis or Gianni? Because Italians in this area Giannis. cannot say Giannis, and it's my favorite thing. Giannis. <laughs> and I was tested by a parent who was like, do you know where I got that from? I'm like, oh, I, I think I know where you I got can that imagine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to get out of here, or do you want to talk a little job, Marianne? Just That's it for this year. Right. That, right. That's it for this one. <laughs> All right. We'll save, job. Good. we'll save job for after silver brings brings the hammer down brings the hammer down that's yeah. true all right playing ways to get in contact with the show you can email us at the tuna podcast at gmail.com two p's in there uh if you can follow us on all the social platforms at the tune up hq we are everywhere be sure to subscribe on youtube at the tune up um if you want to follow the big man he has been posting about his journey across the country at benny horowitz on instagram i'm at denny gallagher ben you got anything else yeah stay classy New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> the show has ended. Go in peace. You have been listening to and watching the tune-up. <laughs>